Well, I said it first service, I'll say it again. I have never lived south of like Route 30, but that song, okay, can we do that? We're in Ohio, all right? That was good, that was good. So um, it was a summer evening, and for the sake of the story, let's say it's like 1890s-ish, and it was going to be incredible. All of London High Society was there. It was supposed to be the event of the year, but nobody could have predicted what was about to happen. Carriages steadily made their way down gas-lit avenues. Porters opened brass-handled doors at the front entrance to the theater. The men, tuxedoed, mustached, all buttoned up, the women wearing Parisian ball gowns. Inside the theater, the lights dimmed, signaling the start of the performance. Late arrivers found their seats, the overture started, the curtain lifted, and there she was. The the crowd rose to their feet in applause, enthralled with the glory of opening night. She danced across the stage with grace and beauty and poise. Her pirouettes were perfect. The crowd was enraptured until she jumped. Even the back row could hear the snap. Everyone moved instantly to the front of their seats and they breathed this like collective gasp, holding their breath. The ballerina had actually fallen so hard that she created a hole in the floor. The curtain fell quickly and the master of ceremonies came out and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to inform you that our prima ballerina has suffered a broken ankle and she won't be able to join the company this evening. But her understudy is very good. I think you'll enjoy her. In the meantime, please enjoy a selection from the orchestra. So the crowd sort of settled back in their seats a little bit, mildly disappointed, but it was okay mumbling to themselves. Moments later, the curtain lifted and out she came, applause. She danced across the stage with grace and beauty and poise. Her pirouettes were perfect until she fell into the same hole created by the first ballerina. So it's a story, a parable. It's lesson, before you try something new, fix the hole. I think it's true of us spiritually also. In order to enjoy what really matters, we've got to fix what's really wrong. More on that in in just a minute. So back in February, we started a series called The Whole Story. And if you've been with us for a while, you know that God's word, the Bible, is really a collection of stories and scenes and snippets, all sewn together to point to one big idea God's love for a broken and lost humanity shown in the person of Jesus Christ. Last week, Pastor Ryan stopped the tape at this really critical season in Israel's history called the Time of the Kings. And he showed us that kings come and kings go, each one of them imperfect, each one of them just a foreshadowing of this one day future perfect king who will lead his people like a wonderful warrior shepherd. 
Well, we're going to stay in that same time period this morning, the same political tensions, the same leaders, the same realities, but we're going to add a layer on top. We're going to take a look at a, at a part in the Bible called the prophets. The prophets, 16, or 17 books written by 16 authors, all with, interestingly, kind of the same message. God's message to his people through all of these guys is basically the same thing, and it's this. I'm done being your next ballerina. I am not your one night stand. I am not your flash in the pan. I wanna be with you for the long haul. But if you're gonna enjoy what really matters, you've got to restore what's really wrong. It's time to fix the hole in the floor. So this morning, I want to look at three principles that characterize the prophet's ministry. I've got 25 minutes, so buckle up. These principles are as relevant today as they were 3,000 years ago, and they point to the parable of the ballerina. To enjoy what really matters, we've got to restore what's really wrong. So before we get going, I want you to do something, and you're going to need a hard copy of God's Word to do this. Um, I usually use the YouVersion Bible app on my phone, but I want you to see if you can grab a Bible either with you or under the seat in front of you. There's a copy, and so I want you to do something with me. Turn to the table of contents. There is no shame in using the table of contents, all right? And I want you to find the book of Isaiah. I'm cheating because I've got my bookmark, so sorry. Find the book of Isaiah, okay? It should be roughly in the center of your Bible. Isaiah chapter one. And I want you to put your finger there. And then I want you to turn to the right, just like you're reading a book like this. And I want you to find the prophet Malachi, okay? It's a tiny little book and you're probably gonna find Matthew first. So find Matthew and then turn to the left a couple of pages and get to Malachi. And you should have a section of your Bible like this, okay? So you don't have to hold it up, but it's gonna look a little like this. This is a lot of hay to bale. <laughs> this little fistful of pages of the prophets. This is who we talk about, these guys. Now, if you are using the Bible app, they don't even fit on the same screen because there's so many of them. All right, this fistful of pages constitutes 400 years of Israel's history, more than 400. That's like if you're looking at American history, that's like from the Jamestown settlement until now. That's a lot of time. Okay, these guys weren't like quick. They weren't just on the scene for a little bit of time. They were a fixture on Israel's landscape for over four centuries. That's one thing just gonna help you orient to this. Another thing, these guys lived during kind of three mini time periods, right? We talked about the time of the kings, okay? Well, if you know your Bible history, you know right where we are, and if you don't, it's okay. Let me catch you up. Um, so God's people, where we left off last week, was with the king of Solomon. We all know Solomon. He's a familiar face, right? Familiar name. We know one thing about Solomon is he was supposed to be very wise, okay? The trouble is, right after Solomon, the kingdom split into two. And this breaks God's heart. This is what we call the divided kingdom. And the, 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 the kingdom, God's people split. And like most things, when you break them in half, they're twice as vulnerable and half as powerful, and this is not at all what God's, God wants for his people. And they continue like this for a while until a neighboring kingdom comes in and rips God's people out of the land, this kingdom called Babylon. And they, they're taken away, led by hooks through their jaws 
roughly the distance from like here to Houston, traveling for generations in Babylon and they're slaves. This is called the exile. They're not in the land that God promised them. And then, about two generations later, people start to trickle back to the land. Slowly, 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 in small groups. This is called the return. So this is what's going on in the world while the prophets are writing. Some of the prophets write to warn of an upcoming exile, some write during the exile, and some write after the exile. But their message is the same. Last little thing before we dive in. There were 16 prophets, 16 men, all with the unenviable task of speaking truth to power. Well, who? Who'd they speak to? They spoke to 30 different kings and leaders. God gave the prophets the singular task of pointing out the hole in the dance floor. And just to carry the metaphor a little bit further, it's not like they wrote their suggestions down on a card and dropped it in the comment box in the theater lobby. It's like they stormed into the manager's office, pounded their fists on the desk and said, no, this is not okay. They were burdened by something. They weren't bothered by something. When you're bothered by something, all you do is complain about it, right? But when you're burdened for something, you seek God's will prayerfully and then you act based on what he shows you. And that burden and this position made them very unpopular with kings and leaders. It made them misunderstood by people. But they were clear, they were concise, and they were bold. And all that brings us to our first principle. So if you still have your finger in Isaiah 1, awesome. If not, find your way back to Isaiah 1. Our first principle is this. We are relators. We are relators. So we learned that when God's people came out of the land, God gave them a law to follow. And this law had all kinds of rules in there. Uh, what kind of festivals to celebrate? What kind of holidays need to go on the, cal- the calendar? Um, how do we worship? How do we eat? All of this stuff was made up in the law. And God gave this to his people as a way to separate them from the tribes around him. So they would live differently and look differently. This was God's gift to his people. But now in Isaiah 1, God is going to use some really strange language to talk about his relationship with his people. Look in Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to take a look in verse 11. Now this is God talking here. This is like very visceral type stuff. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams, the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls, of lambs, or of goats. This is the things that he called them to sacrifice. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. This is God saying this. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Now, wait a second. God gave his people the law. Right? Like, he, he told them what to do. They're doing everything they're supposed to. And now here he is saying, I hate this. 
I'm weary of carrying this around. I can't do this anymore. My soul hates it. Why? Take a look at verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove evil deeds before, your eyes, before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. And plead the widow's cause. One of the most catastrophic mistakes you can make in life is to take what is essential and move it to the periphery and take what is peripheral and make it essential. This is kind of what God's getting at with his people here. The terrifying indictment is that they're doing all the right stuff. He's like, you guys are keeping all the laws right? You're keeping all the sacrifices. You're making everything great. Worship is awesome. You're, you're following my rules to the letter. But look at how you treat the widow. Look at how you treat the orphan. Look what happens when you see injustice. Do you act out? No. You keep my rules, but you have lost my heart. Do you even know me anymore? So imagine something with me. Imagine it's Valentine's Day, okay? And uh, because I, I you go to the store and I've got this big old box of a dozen roses for Mandy. And they got like the big old ribbon on it with like the, you know, the happy Valentine's Day thing on there. You know, and I've got that little, little crunchy little packet of plant food stuff that's like jammed in there because I want this to last, you know. And I bring it home and I give it to her and I say, here you go, happy Valentine's Day. And she looks at me with these wonderful eyes and she says, these are beautiful. Why would you do this for me? And I say, because all the other husbands are doing it too. <laughs> and like, it's Valentine's Day. This is sort of what we do, right? Like she's lady, get with the program. Valentine's Day roses, I gotta do this. I thought you needed them. And um, like I waited to the last minute so I got out like a great deal. So we're good. And I figured it was okay if I go out with Tim Tally tonight, we're gonna go get wings. Is that good? Like, why is that terrible? Lots of reasons, right? Why is that terrible? Because in that moment, I have divorced my actions, what I do, from my affections, who I love. Because in that moment, what I'm doing, who I'm, what I'm loving, has nothing to do with my wife. And has everything to do with keeping up appearances, checking off some boxes, making sure I look okay, making sure my obligations are filled. Result, zero brownie points. Actually, negative brownie points, right? When I have a relationship with you, I develop an affection for you. But if I live out of some vague sense of duty or obligation, our relationship is gonna be nothing more than empty momentum and meaningless ritual. That's what God, through the prophet Isaiah, is saying here. He says, I am tired of this one-sided, lip-serviced, boring, colorless religion. You weren't created to do stuff. You were created to be stuff. And we're not that much different. So here's the thing. God is not impressed by what you do for him. He's impressed by who you could become in him. Those are very different things. 
This kind of begs the question a little bit, but if you want to get to know somebody, how do you get to know them? You spend time with them, right? Kind of a simple answer. You don't stalk them, right? Like many Christians are like guilty of stalking Jesus. It's like we sit outside his house with binoculars, right? And we learn like really cool facts and like very interesting trivia, things that are very good and very true and maybe helpful to some degree or another, but are no more capable than sustaining a relationship any more than an obligatory rose on Valentine's Day. And here's what we sound like. We say stuff like this. We say, well, I go to church, man. Like I try, I'm going to church. Look, I'm trying. All right, I memorize stuff. Like look at my shelves. They're full of notes, binders and books. Look at me, I'm going. I got my stuff, I'm doing it. All right, I haven't lied much. Maybe a little. Don't cheat on my taxes. Don't cheat on my wife. I haven't killed anybody. Don't speed. Well, and all the while God's like, great. Do you know me? Do you know me? Israel's biggest problem is that they followed the rules and they lost their heart. But God gives his people hope. Look at what he's about to do. Skip down to verse 18. He says this. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, I don't know how a sword eats. I just know it doesn't sound very good. And I'd rather be on the other side of that equation. (laughs) But more to the point, it gets at what God is about to do. Someone, something, someday is coming. And this king is going to change everything. So, God wants a relationship with you. Great, good news. Bad news. Here's your second principle we are rebels. We are relators, but we are also rebels. Go ahead and find the book Hosea. All right, so you can go back to the table of contents. This one's a tough one to find. Give yourself a minute. Find Hosea. Hosea. While you're finding your way there, let me give you a quick intro. Hosea starts out with this incredibly striking command. God tells a prophet named Hosea to marry a prostitute. Like he literally says, Hosea, man of God, my dude, Marry a prostitute. And we're going like, what? What is that? God tells him to do it and he does it. And it's like this giant living drama that he wants his people to see. He's asking Hosea to play the part of the faithful husband, God. And he's asking him to marry a prostitute who play the part of his people, us, okay? And like any good husband, Hosea gives his wife so many good things. And then she uses those good things to leave him. And it's this giant object lesson like you do for kids, right? When you teach them about things, there's all these little object lessons boiled into this. And he's saying, you're gonna play the part of me and and your wife, your faithless wife, is gonna play the part of the people. Now watch what she does. Take a look at chapter two. We're gonna look at the second half of verse five. 
For she said, this is, this is us saying this, I will go after my lovers who gave me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And then here's God talking. He says, therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I'll build a wall against her so she can't find her paths. She'll pursue her lovers, but she won't overtake them. She'll seek them, but she won't find them. And then she'll say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Now here's the cinch at the bottom of this, verse eight. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal, another name for a false god. Do you hear God weeping in there? You should. If you don't think we have an emotional God, read Hosea. It'll break you in half. Here's rebellion in its clearest form, okay? Taking God's good gifts and using them to contain him or keep him at arm's length distance. That's what he's saying here. He's like, I gave you so many good things and you use those good things to leave me. Now, we don't think of ourselves as rebels to that extent, right? That's pretty dramatic, come on. At least not outwardly. For most of us, our rebellion stays hidden in the back corner of an otherwise very well manicured life. So here's my story. I was saved when I was seven, and I really believe that I was. I had awesome parents, I still do. Grew up in an awesome house, it still is. But I had nothing inside. I spent like 10 years of my life like this shriveled, benevolent ghost. I know that's a weird thing to say. It's like the only way to explain it. Like half of me is here, like showing up for life, but like the other half, the more important part of me was like somewhere else. Like it didn't, it didn't, wasn't really here. And so I did all the Christian things you're supposed to do. Like I was really well behaved for the most part, right? I was a really good kid, but my activity out here, spot on. My affection in here, like, uh, not really, just like not, not there. I had no affection for Jesus. I was a very soft, well-behaved rebel. What I had actually done was reduce the Christian life to brand management. Like how well could I sell you on the idea that I was a Christian? And my t-shirt, and my bumper sticker, go to church, right? One day I found myself in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes gets a bad rap in the Old Testament, but it's awesome, okay? Ecclesiastes, basically, I'll summarize it for you like this. Life is meaningless. Try whatever you want, it's empty. At the bottom of every well, you can drink your well at the bottom of every well, they're all bone dry at the bottom. There's nothing there for you. And I read that, and like, that sounds depressing, right? But for me, it's just the way my brain works, like the lights went on, and I'm like, holy cow. Like, this is the first time the Bible ever made sense to me. Because I'm going, this guy sounds like I feel. And no one's ever had the courage to say that to me like that. That makes total sense to me. Uh-oh, now what do I do? Right? So I found my way, like, to John. John 10.10. 10. John 10.10, 10, Jesus says this. Like, I have come, that's what Jesus is saying. Not that you might have life, like, mm, 
life, right? But that you may have life more abundant. It's like it goes from 2D to 3D. It's like when, when like Dorothy drops in Oz and everything goes from like black and white to color. It's like all of a sudden it's like, whoa, this is a Jesus that I have not been acquainted with before. He's talking differently. And so I said, okay, I'm in. I want to get to know that Jesus. Here's what I learned. God loves you too much to let you settle for anything less than him. And with Ecclesiastes on one side and John 10, 10 on the other, God began to frustrate my quiet, well-behaved, soft voice insurrection. My rebellion was not a tire-squealing, bottle-breaking, rage-induced fury where I woke up one morning with a needle in my arm. That's just not my story. But it meant a partitioned life where God could have some of my life, but not all of it. And so I finally gave up and said, it's all yours. I'm done, it's yours, you can have it. And that's God's word through Hosea. And he's like, I want all of you. Every last bit of your life, I want it because I love you more than anybody else does. And in a room this size, I know that there are some of you that resonate with that. And I know it not because I'm trying to manipulate you, control you, or cajole you. I know it because it is such a common tale. So before we go any further, because there's another blank on your outline, I want to ask you, have you ever named your rebellion? Have you ever named it? Every rebellion has a name. Mine was casual, well-behaved hypocrisy. And it is terrible. And it was based on the belief that acting right is being right. For some of you, it could be bitter envy because God isn't good enough to you to give you what you want. And he's holding out on you. For some of you, it could be fatal materialism. For some of you, it could be slow burn anger. And it's based on the idea that somehow God has wronged you and owes you an explanation, darn it. It could be called covered lust because you want something that you can't have. And if God loved you, he'd find a way to make that dream come true. Every rebellion has a name and you have to be the one to name it. Nobody else can do it for you. But here's the good news about our God. Go back to Hosea. Here's the, oh, this is so good. Look in verse 14. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. Do you ever think of yourself as being allured by God? Like he's chasing you down, seeking you out to reclaim you. I will bring her to the wilderness. I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor, that means trouble, a door of hope. Like look what he's doing. I'm making something that was trouble. I'm turning it into hope. There she shall answer me as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Like, get that. Do you remember how good it was? Could you imagine how good it was if you were God's people when he led you out of the land of Egypt? Like, that's a high point. That's like, yeah, daddy beating up the bully for me and I get to go home scot-free into this brand new place. This is incredible. He says, it's gonna be like that again. But then he goes further. Verse 16. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, 
and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the heaven, the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land. Doesn't that sound so good? And I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. That's where our God is driving this bus. He's about to do something really big. To enjoy what really matters, we've got to restore what's really wrong. Here's the best news, guys. When faced with a choice about what to do with his rebellious people, God takes a look at the situation and he says, I don't want a divorce. I want reconciliation. My sin, your sin, was enough to make God go, you know what, I'm done. Have it your way. I'm out. You've broken my heart too many times. I am done with you people. But he doesn't do that. He gets closer. And he says, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, it's gonna be like it was again. Remember like back in the day, it's gonna be like that. Just wait, I'm gonna do something awesome. Just sit tight to keep looking forward. So we are relators, we are rebels, and here's your third one. We are desperate. We are desperate. Because just like Israel, just like my 17-year-old self, you don't need rebranding. You need rebirth. Jeremiah chapter 31. Take a look at this one. Sorry, it's back to the left. They're a little mixed up. Jeremiah 31. And I want you to take a look at verse 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. We're just gonna read a few verses here. And I want you to pick up on the same imagery. It's so powerful. Behold, the days are are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, what? Not on stone tablets coming down from a mountain, right? Not on a plaque outside of a courthouse. Where is he gonna put his law? Within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, like finger pointing. No, no, no. For they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity. Whoa. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Like God just blew the lid off this thing. He's like, not am I gonna just like come back to you and we're gonna have this great cozy relationship like we used to? That's great. Beyond that, I'm gonna forgive you. I'm gonna give you a new heart. I'm gonna change the game completely. For God so loved the world that he didn't send us a behavior manual. He sent us a king. This is Jeremiah looking forward to this one day future king who will change us from the inside out. I mean, you get how profound that is, right? Every other religion in the world, every one of them, tries to change you from the outside in. And it says like, behave this way, 
dress like this, say these words, say these prayers, do these things, here's your steps, do this and earn your salvation. And God says, wait, time out. You are too desperate for that. I am tired for the outside, like waiting for the outside to seep its way in. So I'm going for it. I'm gonna give you heart surgery. You're gonna get a brand new heart. I'm gonna take out that cold lump of stone that's in your chest. I'm gonna replace it with a real live beating heart that's built for love for me. To enjoy what's really wrong, you need to restore what's really broken. What's really wrong with Brandon Marshall isn't my behavior. It's my heart. And I am desperate for him to move. So who is this king, right? Fast forward to the New Testament. You don't have to go there, but just just think about this. Have you ever noticed the kind of people that Jesus hangs out with? Like the kind of people that don't have their stuff together. That's good news. Their life does not look like a Thomas Kincaid painting. It looks more like a scene from Apocalypse Now. They're like, yeah, my life is a train wreck. Let me tell you about it. Good. Think through the Gospels. It's a woman in a crowd, straining, reaching, just to try and touch Jesus, right? She just gets like this little fringe of his garment, right? This like little short tax collector. What's his name? Zacchaeus, right? He risks public ridicule by climbing a tree just to get a glimpse of this guy as he walks through town. Right? Or how about like nameless roof dude? Guy hanging out on a roof and he gives his friends the green light. He says, cut out the trusses and the thatch. Lower me down. I don't care. I need to get to Jesus. Desperation. Jesus is a welcome gift to those who are desperate and he is a needless distraction for those who are self-sufficient. You've got your stuff together. Jesus can't do anything with you. You're broken. Do you know you're a rebel? You know you need help? Great. Jesus is ready to start working. You want to see a desperate disciple? They're the kind that are rough around their edges, the ones who don't know the right words to say or how to act. They're not quaint, cute, charming, or admirable, but there's like this grit in their soul because they're real people. That's the kind of people Jesus hangs out with, desperate disciples, In the economy of Christ, desperation is a virtue. Self-sufficiency is a liability. Because he's looking for people he can form, not people who are already made. So how do you know if you're a desperate disciple? Okay, little test for you. I'm just gonna give you a couple questions. Do you forgive easily? Or do you harbor bitterness when you're wrong? Do you worship freely or do you get hung up? Do you pray honestly or do you hide behind some kind of a formula? Does the Bible taste good to you when you read it? How do you talk about yourself? As a needful child or do you lead with your spiritual resume? Are you comfortable in your weaknesses or do you work hard to obscure them? To enjoy what really matters, we need to restore what's really wrong. 
We are relators, we are rebels, we are desperate. So, it's 2018, we're on this side of the cross. We've got what the prophets couldn't even see. Think about that for a minute. All of these guys were like looking, like peering through the haze, trying to find this king who's coming. Here we are, we've got it. The written record of this man called Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, who lived a perfectly sinless life, died a sacrificial death, so that all of this restoration could happen. My only question, do you know him? I mean, like, do you really, really know him? Not do you appreciate him? Do you recognize him? Do you like him? Do you know him? All of these prophets saw the same person, just turned at different angles. A king is coming. God's redemption is getting closer and it builds and it builds and it builds through every one of these prophets and over 400 years of their ministry, it builds and then all of a sudden this hope like is about to swell and pop and then all of a sudden, as if like the conductor just turned off the symphony, there's no more visions. There's no more word from God. God stopped speaking for 400 more years after Malachi, he was quiet. He didn't say one thing. But he wasn't done. He was waiting. And if you've been tracking it all, you know that next week, God does something incredible. And just to set the tone, it's like he's standing outside of a room that we are all in, and he's got his hand on the doorknob, and he's turned it. And he's just about to push. But that's for next week. The parable of the ballerina is a powerful one for a lot of reasons. But for me, just to be candid, I don't like to admit that my dance floor is broken. And neither do you. I would rather trot something else out and be amused. But God hasn't created us for our own amusement He's created us for a relationship with him that lasts forever. And if we're gonna enjoy what really matters, we've got to restore what's really wrong. Let me pray for us. God, you are a good king. You are so very patient with us. You are relentlessly generous. You have given us more than we deserve, more than we could hope for. You give us breath in our lungs. You give us joys that we could never earn. And we use all of your gifts to block you out. On the throne of our heart, we're still sitting there and we like it. So God, would you give us the courage to get ourselves off of our throne and to keep ourselves off of that throne and to put you on there. Show us where we don't believe you. God, I pray that you'd begin to work in our hearts here this morning. God, for those who, who know you, for those who love you, God, I ask that you would draw us closer to yourself. For those who need to find their way back to you, maybe they've let you go too far tethered for a while and they wanna come back, would you help them find their way back?
For those who have never known you, and maybe they want to, would you draw them to yourself only in the way that you can? Father God, you are very good to us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're gonna sing a song in just a second. And as we do, I'm gonna ask you to do something. Sometimes the physical can be a catalyst for the spiritual. And so if God's moving in your heart and you wanna do some business before you leave today, would you come forward and just kneel at these altars? They're just wood at the front of a sanctuary. There's nothing magical or whatever. Just come up here and say, okay, I'm in. I'm doing this thing different. But don't leave here today without doing business with God.